from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, social distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can we flatten the curve on climate change? A tale of two snack pouches, a new effort to test blockchain to trace plastics, and why athletes are going to bat for the climate. We're safe at home this week on 350. It's April 10th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from a very safe distance in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. How are you this week? Doing okay. Good week. You yeah. know, it, it, for some reason, the hold up here at home and, you know, which I've been working out of home a lot in my career, but busier than ever this week. Just so much. And, oh my God, Zoom. I should have bought shares, although I hear they're not doing great. But the Zoom thing is just, uh, I spend four or five, maybe sometimes six Zoom calls a day now. And maybe some of that's on Google Hangout, but mostly Zoom. And uh, I've, you know, all of a sudden have to just be much more aware of my uh, physical appearance than I did. I'm sure a lot of people listening have uh, are experiencing some of that as well. And not, not to mention lighting. Lighting and P.S. Women of a certain age who use uh, chemical hair enhancements are going to get to a point where they don't necessarily want to be on video uh, later this month when their roots are showing. Yeah, you know, we're we're all going through some uh, bad hair month during April, and so uh, I think people people will be uh, getting used to that. I know, and it's such a First world problem. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to even bring it up. I um, I have to say that the people that I am having the most empathy for right now are the parents, uh, the ones that have kids at home that that are they're trying to homeschool, they're trying to work and keep their their jobs going. And I have just so much respect for the parents and the teachers, and of course those kids that are flexing in ways that they never imagined. I uh, my heart goes out to you guys. I mean, they're essential. <laughs> the parents are so essential right now, and they're not getting credit. I don't think. Yeah, um, one of our yeah. one of our colleagues, Paul Carp, uh, who directs uh, sales at GreenBiz, uh, doing one of our calls where we go around the, the horn and you know answer a question. And the question that somebody asks is, "What are you grateful for?" So everybody talked about what they're grateful for, and Paul's answer: teachers. He says, "Now that I've spent a couple of days homeschooling my kids." I have a newfound respect for teachers. So uh, that's, I think, to your point, people are appreciating lots of things that go on in their non-work worlds that they're now having to experience uh, a little bit more firsthand. Mm-hmm. But speaking of lots of virtual events, we've got lots of them coming, don't we? We are. It's like so many other organizations, we're ramping up our digital offerings. Um, we've always done uh, this podcast and a lot of webcasts, but we're really as you say, ramping those up. But the big event is on May 19th, which is Circularity 20. Uh, This is the digital version, a half-day digital version of the Circularity 20 conference, which was supposed to take place that week, has now been moved, the physical event has been moved to August, 
uh, 25th to 27th in Atlanta, but Circularity 20 Digital is a half-day event that we're going to be doing online, a number of, of keynote and, and, and workshops and things like that that will be taking place. So um, I encourage you, we'll be sending a link to that. Uh, you can go to uh, greenbiz.com slash events slash circularity slash digital slash 2020. That's probably too much to remember, so we'll just put the link in uh, the page for this week's podcast. And then webcast. Um, Heather, you've got one coming up uh, in May, and it's part of this this sort of onslaught of webcasts that we'll be producing. Tell us what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually doing a story for the Earth Day week uh, called This is Climate Tech, and it's exploring just the the various uh, technologies and solutions that fall under the moniker of climate tech. It's not clean tech 2.0. This is the sort of deeper understanding that in order to address the climate crisis, these solutions need to also address the equity and economic issues that, that, that have kind of put our systems out of whack. So we're, we're talking about things for sustainable food systems and and carbon removal and clean energy and so forth, but uh, deeper and, and uh, more meaningful. I am writing a story about that for the Earth Day week, and we've got a, a webcast planned for May 28th. I'm not going to mention the, the speakers yet because I haven't confirmed them, but I got some really good venture capitalists who are, are on board and helping me with the story. You have one coming up before mine, don't you? And, and, and it's with a pretty uh, well-known uh, name in our community. Can you tell me about that one? I actually have three coming up, so, oh my so let's go through that. Uh, I'm really excited about these two. On the last week of April, on April 28th, we will be uh, releasing our uh, biennial State of the Profession report. Now, uh, this is a report that looks at green uh, salaries and uh, budgets and headcounts and a lot of other trends for people in the profession of sustainability inside companies. So John Davies, who produces that report for our team, uh, will be on that along with uh, Ellen Weinreb, who runs the Weinreb Group, a headhunter in uh, sustainability, and Peggy Brannigan, who heads sustainability at LinkedIn, which is doing a number of things, uh, interesting things around trying to connect people with sustainable jobs and careers. So April 28th on that one, and two days later, one called on coronavirus and the clean economy, uh, a roundtable conversation with our four clean tech analysts, Sarah Golden, who covers energy, Lauren Phipps on circular economy, Jim Giles on food and carbon, and Katie Fehrenbacher on transportation and mobility. We're going to talk about uh, how this is affecting markets and some of the contracts and other kinds of things and how virtual shutdown of food service operations and restaurants is disrupting food waste programs. Lots and lots to cover there. And then on May 14th, I'll be doing a fireside chat of sorts, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with John Elkington. John Elkington, if you don't know him, is uh, in this longer than anybody, including me. Uh, he started the consulting firm Sustainability in the mid-1980s. And coined the term triple bottom line in the 90s and for 30 plus years has been at the forefront of strategy for companies, countries uh, looking forward to where things are going. And uh, I've always enjoyed my conversations with him. I did one last summer in London with him in person in front of uh, his community. 
Uh, he's returning the favor. We're going to have a conversation to talk about uh, all that's going on, including his new book called Green Swan. So that's coming up. But enough of that. Let's get back to the Week in Review. So let's start with our weekly look at the impact of COVID-19, the coronavirus, on the sustainability profession. And I'd love to, I, again, I, I've, you've got a string of really great essays going here, Joel. And one I wanted to point out this week, you, you talk about flattening the curve on climate and sort of taking that, that meme, if you will, that very easy to understand uh, rationale for why we're all social distancing and sheltering at home and applying it to the climate crisis. Could you, could you explain what, how, you, how you saw this? Well, a lot of us have been looking at the connection between what's going on in coronavirus and climate change. I'm not, I'm not talking about causal connections, what caused what. That's a tough conversation. I'm talking about what we're learning as we address this pandemic and this global crisis that could be helpful going on. And uh, part of that is this flattening the curve. And, and the message in flattening the curve is that early action uh, mitigates later problems. So, you know, start soon uh, or else, in effect. And I provided a visual to show what that would look like, what flattening the curve looks like for climate change. It's a little bit crude, but it sort of makes the visual point. But this is a concept that's pretty easy to grasp, especially after the pandemic experience. In other words, the more we can control the uncontrollable, the better we'll be able to adapt and weather some of the worst impacts. It's a shared experience, something we're going through all over the world. Almost every country now is sheltering in place in some form um, and with the notion of flattening the curve. And, you know, it's just, it's just, it's something that people now get. We would have never gotten that uh, a month ago. Now it's kind of generally understood. I mean, maybe not by everybody, but uh, everybody doesn't need to understand the curve in order to help propagate what it's about. And so I just thought, you know, let's, let's look at that. And maybe that's a meme that we can use to finally help people understand uh, that action on climate needs to happen now. Exactly. And I, I, uh, I know that there's some comments building on it. And I've seen people starting to talk about that, that and how they communicate. And we've had a couple of good, I won't, I could name them specifically, but there's definitely some really good thinking going on about how we communicate. And we, we've talked, as we know, talking to the sustainability professionals out there, how, how you um, communicate this going forward will be very, very important. And, and the sensitivity that we all need to have on that is, is cannot be under underplayed. Uh, I, I wanted to point to a second story as well this week that came from a couple of folks over at the, the Navigant Research Organization. It's uh, Casey Tallon and Karsten Petersdorf, who's with Guidehouse, which acquired Navigant, um, I think, late last year. And they write about climate COVID-19 and the economics of decarbonizing buildings. And this is something that you spoke with um, the JLL sustainability Cynthia lead, Curtis, uh, yeah. Cynthia Curtis last week. But there, th this is a really thoughtful essay about how uh, companies will need to approach buildings um, when we do get to go back to whatever it is we're going back to, to our offices, to our schools, to our 
our government buildings. Uh, and it, it's a thoughtful look at, at what sort of the um, maintenance challenges may be as people return and, um, and, and you know, ap- after these emergency shutdowns, what's happened, but also extending that to the future and how as you're, uh, as you're recommissioning these buildings, bringing them back up and running them, how you prepare for uh, the longer term shutdowns that need to be happening. So as we have more climate changes, sort of inspired natural disasters happening in terms of hurricanes and flooding and so forth, how you apply um, the, the lessons of now to what you should do to prepare for the infrastructure for that. Um, and that includes things like um, all electric, right? So the all electric conversation might be more, people might be more receptive to that conversation. You're talking about forward. electrified buildings here. Exactly. All electrified buildings. So the heat pumps, you know, for heating, air source heat pumps, for example, um, that are run by electricity. Not so much in the industrial sector yet, because we know that there's a lot that needs to happen with the technology to make that happen. But definitely with uh, digital um, and remote control of buildings. I mean, imagine if you could be doing some of these things virtually, right? We're all working virtually right now. This is a great time to really look at how digital buildings and those systems, which could be uh, automated and, and also run more efficiently from afar and how important they will be in the future. And I think, so it's, it's, just, it's a really thoughtful, specific piece about um, what companies and building owners might want to think about doing now, you know, before they go back in, and then of course, as they get back in, what where where they take that in the future. Well, speaking of technological innovation, I want to talk about a piece that you did, Heather, uh, about three companies that are testing blockchain for tracing plastics. What's going on here? <laughs> so I haven't gotten to talk about my favorite topic <laughs> in a few weeks, right? Blockchain, now one of my favorite topics, but uh, we have covered on the site and in this podcast and in various discussions, the implications that blockchain technology, the ledger, the digital ledger technology that was first associated with Bitcoin and how it's being applied now to supply chain applications. And there's just all sorts of of wonderful pilots um, and and just beyond pilots going on with, with all manner of things in the food, sector, um, fashion, it's happening in the fashion sector. And this particular story deals with the possibilities to do with tracing plastics. So there is a, a, an effort called Circularize, um, it, and it is involves three companies right now, Covestro, which is a polymer manufacturer, Domo, which is a polyamide supplier, and they're both from Europe. Um, and they're collaborating with a startup called aptly circularize to figure out how to trace plastics. Um, and this is the idea that you could, uh, could, could, could see where the, the different uh, p- pellets are coming from and the actual, the materials level, be able to understand um, where it's going into a product, whether or not it's been potentially recycled, or if it has been recycled, it's a way of verifying that claim. Um, and the people that this really could have a benefit for are the, of course, the the people that are making products. So BASF and Stanley Black and Decker have also been uh, testing this this technology in order to see if you know, like, if you buy a thing from Black and Decker, 
how much recycled plastic is in it. And this is a way that they might be able to actually verify and certify those claims more, more easily. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating effort. I, I should you know, mention that it's very small right now. But one of the things that's really compelling about this particular initiative is that this, these companies are working on it and then they want to make it an open standard. So the idea is that they'll put this out there and that any chemical company um, or, or palm, you know, anyone in that, that, that sector could use the same approach. And the idea is the more that use it, the better transparency we'll have. Well, speaking of technological innovations, let's turn to a piece by our senior writer, Elsa Wenzel, called A Tale of Two Snack Pouches. Now, I don't think many people need an introduction to snack pouches of those soft, pliable little containers for juices and, and uh, I guess, puddings and all kinds of things. And, and the question is, what are they made from? Because as, as convenient as those are and as much packaging as they actually eliminate by being uh, this soft, flexible packaging, uh, from a physical standpoint, they become a problem because you can't recycle them. So she talks about uh, two different products and what the companies are doing to try and bring those uh, into the circular economy. Yeah. And uh, the two companies in question are Go Go Squeeze. And I'm not a parent. So I, I was like, oh, that's a cool product. <laughs> I went and looked. Um, but they, they make, you know, again, the, these, these uh, things for kids to eat, baby food and on the go, but also Nestle's Gerber division. They're, they, they're taking uh, very different approaches um, to, 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 to manage this. Um, and I think what, one of the things that is, is notable is that they understand that Right now, they're, they're probably going to have a limited, uh, they're trying to have these things be, be recyclable, but the infrastructure isn't there. So um, th there's some good work going on by both of them. And, and you can definitely read the story to see the exact, um, I'm gonna, Elsa's gotten to a lot of detail, but she's really talking about the format and, and all the different changes that have happened to remove the layering of these packages and what makes it hard to recycle. Um, but the, the thing that both of them face really um, you know, when it comes to the end of the day, is that the infrastructure and municipal recycling system isn't going to necessarily be able to handle these. So even though they're they're working on these both right now, it, the the they they might have to get into to a, a place where they recycle them, um, send them back through TerraCycle, uh, which is a, which is a company, of course, that that takes a lack a lot of things that are quote hard to recycle and tries to find new uses for them. Um, but there's a, it's an interesting, the Nestle people actually have, are teaming up with Potsdam, Pennsylvania, <laughs> which I, I was amazed. Um, but they are apparently uh, able to handle the Gerber pouches there. And, and so they're testing it in this one city. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it begs, begs a further examination because that's just one city. And, and for, for these people to be able to pull this off, they do need the municipal infrastructure to be there. Uh, so there's definitely going to be need to be more um, waste management companies involved in this in the in the future in order to to pull it off at, at scale. Yeah, and this is just a great object lesson in in the complexities of taking a common product and trying to bring it into the circular economy. Um, how much experimentation is needed, and um, how many different kinds of partnerships, and including with you know the likes of Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, and also, and maybe frustratingly so, how darn long all this takes. 
So Joel, one of the things I do love about this social distancing thing is that you're writing more. <laughs> As an editor, I love it when my best writers write more. Um, and you had a great piece. Um, and it was one of those pieces I read this week uh, that gave me just sort of a relief and relax and hope because it wasn't about coronavirus. It was about eco-athletes, this great new initiative um, that basically looking to turn uh, these high-profile, if you will, celebrity athletes into spokespeople for for the climate crisis, and essentially any time they have an opportunity to to address it in an interview, um, training them how to to have that conversation with facts and and um, of course passion. Tell me a little bit more about the initiative and and who you talked to. So EcoAthletes is the brainchild of Lou Blaustein, who's spent three decades in brand management, sports marketing, and promotion. And he writes Green Sports Blog, which we've been syndicating for about five or six years um, on GreenBiz, and um, started this organization to try to get athletes to be spokespersons, uh, evangelists, if you will, for climate action. Um, looking at you know what the followings they have, the, the kinds of audiences demographically that they tap, and, and figuring out how can we enlist them, conscript them to be part of the conversation. So uh, he's put together this organization. He's got some uh, a pretty interesting group on the board. He's got Michael Mann on the advisory board, uh, Michael Mann at the University of Pennsylvania, sort of the renowned climate scientist, uh, a few other sports figures, a little riffraff like me on it. Um, but uh, the idea was to, how do you start to train athletes, the ones that already are interested and concerned about climate change? How do you then uh, create opportunities for them to be talking about this, whether it's in uh, a typical interview or, uh, or or some other ways, maybe even lobbying? And, um, and, and just then trying to measure that. And it was interesting. There was a survey uh, by Morning Consult uh, last month, a survey of Americans, 2,000 registered voters. And part of the demographics that they check-in in order to cross-tabulate people's belief systems with who they are as they ask about sports. And it turns out 29% of Americans consider themselves avid sports fans, 38% they're casual fans. So that's uh, you know 67% right there. That's that's two-thirds of, of the voting public. Uh, tune into sports one way or another. Why not use that as a platform? So uh, I talked, uh, did a couple of interviews for this and talked to uh, Lou Blaustein about this. And and I asked him, first of all, to explain, what are you hoping that athletes will do? What I hope is and is that they will get trained by us to talk about climate change, and then we'll talk about it in whatever ways they feel comfortable. And let's look at it along a spectrum. You know, it could be at the quote-unquote light end of the spectrum, you know, talking about it in an interview with media after a game or a slice-of-life interview where I'm making it up, a player says, hey, my kid is bugging me about climate change, so I'm getting a Tesla and I'm getting rid of my gas guzzler. In that kind of setting, you know, not official, but this gets eyeballs and ears to, to hear athletes talking about climate change. That's at the light end, all the way to the, I'll call it the heavy end, the, or the deep end of the pool. And that would be you know, lobbying men, members of Congress, lobbying state legislators, talking about it in much more formalized public settings. Imagine, I don't know, Patrick Mahomes Jr. getting an ESPY award 
and talking about climate change the way uh, I can't remember the actor who talked about it at the Oscars. Um, but to give the athlete the confidence and the and the uh, talking points and the facts to be able to talk about it in public. Yeah, and there's always going to be critics, but at least they'll be able to talk about it by knowing what they're talking about. And then, and so that's that's the goal. And then what we're going to do is we are going to track as best as possible the media hits and the actual reach of the climate communications that these athletes undertake, um, both social media, traditional media, etc. The other person I talked to is a starting pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers called Brent Suter. Uh, Brent, uh, pretty interesting. Well, I went to Harvard, uh, studied environment uh, at Harvard, and um, just gets this stuff. Uh, and he's um, probably the only professional baseball player known to pack his lunch in a reusable meal kit. <laughs> and But he was inspired when he was uh, in high school, actually, when he watched an Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's film, and decided this is what he wanted to do. Besides, of course, play baseball, apparently, at which he is very, very good. So I, I talked to Brent and I asked him his vision of what he'd like to see happen uh, in baseball, um, not just at the Milwaukee Brewers, but he refers to MLB, which is Major League Baseball, the uh, umbrella organization. And I have to say, I was pretty impressed with his answer. Big one would be getting every, the whole MLB compost friendly, uh, whether it be concessions, uh, concessions packaging, um, everything going into a compost pile that is then turned into you know, fertile topsoil would be a big loop closing that uh, the baseball industry right now it's not closed really at all but we, if we close that loop and uh, make topsoil out of all compostable materials and everything be compostable would be great um, all led lights and as much solar energy generated at stadiums as we could uh, as little trash maybe you know ideally one percent of all used materials go into landfills and stadiums um, more sustainably grown, like all organic, all sustainably grown food being served at the parks, um, less meat, less beef, you know, uh, more vegetables, more whole, whole grains and fruits being served all organic, um, more of like a communal atmosphere with the food, you know, um, and then kind of local gardens being produced like as, as local as we could grow the food would be great. Um, and, uh, that, that would be, those are some of the highlights for sure at the, at the top of my list. Um, and then, you know, like, like I said before, just like more renewable generation as little CO2 impact uh, that we could have um, as, as possible in baseball. Well, you've uh, pretty much listed everything there. Um, so that's pretty, that's, 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 that's impressive. One, that's that's one area. One area. Yeah. One area. I don't know how, uh, like how we could really limit or eliminate emissions would be the planes you know in baseball there's a lot of traveling and having the plane emissions like there's just not really a as, as far as i know there's not a great alternative for renewable energy for planes quite yet um as you know as opposed to fossil fuels but there's gotta be something there once you get above the clouds you just really get some solar rays or something there's gotta there's some on the horizon i hope yeah <laughs> but yeah that's a big that's a big footprint of baseball is the travel and the, the plane flight so find some way to eliminate or limit that. It's not what you'd expect to hear from a stereotypical jock. I, I was very impressed with this, but it's a good indication of the mindset that some of the sports figures out there have and the understanding and the passion 
to around climate change and they desire to be part of this. So, you know, if eco-athletes can get them to step up to the plate on climate, well, game on. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, the stories and events we mentioned this week while you're there. Check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every week. You can get any or all of them by going to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week from our social distancing locales for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, stay home, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in.